Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebub. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. I tell you the truth. All the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying, he has an evil spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and brothers? He asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Have you ever accused anyone of being out of their mind? The truth is we each have. A married friend of yours takes a bungee jump off a high tower and you exclaim, He's off his nut. He's totally lost it. On a lark, another friend of yours takes a skydiving lesson and jumps out of a perfectly good airplane. And you ask, has she gone out of her mind? A person of modest income decides to purchase a house, obviously way beyond his means. And you say, is he insane? And probably... Someone has said something similar about you at one time or another, and maybe it was at least in part true. But to the extent it was not true, such accusations can be a form of malicious gossip and cruel irrationality, even a form of derangement. But then there is something far more serious, JDS, Jesus Derangement Syndrome. It's a spiritual condition in which an unregenerate person is driven effectively insane due to his or her stubborn, irrational denial of who Jesus truly is. And it is expressed in outright hatred, even vicious hatred, towards Jesus and true Christians. And we shall examine why in this sermon. The religious establishment of Jesus' day on earth detested him. They hated everything he said and did, as do most so-called respectable people today. Mark 3.6 tells us that the religious leaders from the temple in Jerusalem at that time despised Jesus so much that they actually plotted to kill him. 
similarly mention Jesus' claim on people's lives, and seemingly nice people today become completely apoplectic and rage against the man or woman devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. Now, there's great irony in this morning's text. While multitudes sought Jesus because of his miraculous working power and were in awe of him, the religious establishment, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, hated Jesus and were plotting against him because of those very same miracles. While demons immediately recognize Jesus as the Son of God, neither the large crowds nor the Pharisees understood or accepted Jesus as Israel's Messiah or the Son of God. They think Jesus is demon-possessed. And many nice people say similar things today about Jesus. Some say he's a nice man, a good example, but sincerely deceived a man who suffered psychotic delusions of grandeur as to who he really was. Others say he was a religious con man who maliciously lied about who he really was. But Jesus is either a liar or a lunatic or who he said he is, the Lord, the Son of God. So I begin by asking, who do you say Jesus is? How do you react to Jesus and his claims to be both fully God and fully man who's come to be Savior and Lord of his people. So let's look at Mark 3, verses 20 to 35 together. We'll consider first questioning Jesus' mental health. Second, Jesus' reasoned response. Third, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Fourth, family redefined. And finally, What must we do in response to all of this? First, questioning Jesus' mental health. Jesus has returned to Capernaum where he enters into a certain house. It's possible that this house had been the one owned by Peter and Andrew. And it seems to have been Jesus' home base when he was in the region of Galilee. A crowd surrounds the house and those who can press inside and gather around Jesus to hear what he has to say, to seek help and healing. The crowd's demands for miraculous healings are so great, and the crowd's so packed into the house that there isn't even space or time for Jesus and his disciples to eat or rest. It makes you think of the emergency room on a Friday night, which is so often overwhelmed to the point and the needs so great that there isn't time for the staff to eat or take a break. Now, the first attack on Jesus in this passage comes from a very, very unlikely source. In the Greek, it says it comes from those belonging to him, meaning his own people, meaning his own family. We learn from verses 31 and 32 that Jesus' mother and half-brothers have come to the house where he's staying, When they cannot get into the house to see Jesus because of the crowd, they send a message to him that they want to see him. Evidently, Jesus' family had heard that Jesus was not caring properly for his own needs. And out of a deep concern for his welfare, they descend upon him. Apparently, Jesus' mother Mary was concerned about whether he was driving himself too hard. 
Mothers can be like that. You can imagine Mary asking, son, are you eating enough? Are you eating right? Are you getting enough sleep? I'm worried about you. Why don't you come home and rest for a while? But as to Jesus' brothers who've come, they think Jesus is out of his mind. In fact, in John 7, 5, we're told at this point, his brothers just simply didn't believe in him. And perhaps this is not surprising, for even today, siblings of men and women of God can prove to be highly skeptical of their brother who's being used by God. They grew up with him, and to them, he's just another regular guy. From their perspective, they didn't like the way that he, as their older brother, had bossed them around when they were young, and now they say to each other, who does he think he is anyway? He puts his pants on just like we do. And so Jesus' mother and siblings come with the intention of bringing him back home with them because they think Jesus is clearly losing it. So why would they possibly conclude Jesus was out of his mind? Let's consider a few reasons. First, Jesus claims to be God's equal so that he can forgive people's sins. We see that in Mark 2, verse 5. Now, how arrogant is that? Second, Jesus seemingly puffs up his self-importance by calling men to be his disciples, to follow them around the country, and even sends them out to preach and drive out demons. Again, how arrogant is that? Worse, Jesus has become a homeless bum who refuses to work as a carpenter, choosing rather to be an itinerant preacher without a place to call his own. Relatedly, Jesus doesn't work for a living but claims to trust God to supply his needs while living off the largesse of others. Fifth, they think Jesus' inability to rest and eat properly is affecting his mental health. They wonder, perhaps the big crowds he is drawing have gone to his head and inflated his self-importance. Additionally, all the intellectual and learned men from Jerusalem and around Galilee believe that Jesus is demon-possessed. Finally, Jesus oddly has made some hints that he's the Jewish Messiah. How nutty is that? Thus they conclude that Jesus is suffering from delusions of grandeur and mistake his zeal for madness. They conclude it's time to come and physically lay hold on him and take him home to lock him up in the attic or basement or in the back room where they can then try to reprogram him. Amazingly, There are still many people in our world who think just like Jesus' family did at that time when a child or siblings dedicated to serving Christ. For instance, when a family of a teenage son or daughter seems to begin to spread their wings and go astray and and goes out to sin, parents will often dismissively say, oh, he's just sowing his wild oats. He'll come to his senses and settle down in a little while. But if that same young person gets saved and starts living for the Lord and doing crazy things like going to church three times a week, praying all the time, reading his Bible every day, tithing to his church, living a morally clean life, dressing appropriately, telling all his friends and relatives about the claims of Christ, and otherwise acting as a good Christian should, then those very same parents that excused 
his sinful behavior, cannot cope with their child being zealous for Christ. They'll say things like, he's gone off his nut. He's become a religious fanatic. Those people over at Grace Valley Christian Center have brainwashed my child. I just don't understand why he has to live like he does. I worry so much about him. You can correctly conclude that they would rather their child live for the devil than live all out for Jesus. As long as their child's not living significantly worse than they had lived as young people, they don't feel threatened or concerned because of their own refusal to love and submit to Jesus as Lord. But let their child start living a clean, moral, holy life as a Christian, and they become undone. It makes them uncomfortable. It embarrasses them. It even angers them. Christian young person, you might as well come to terms with it this morning. Not everyone in your family and among your friends will be happy that God the Holy Spirit called you to be saved, and that as a consequence, you're now following Jesus as your Lord. There will be some people in your family and among your friends that will criticize and perhaps even persecute you for living for Christ. They'll call you fanatic, Jesus freak, religious nut, holier than thou, holy roller, preacher, and so on. And none of this is surprising. Jesus said it would be this way in Matthew 10, 34 through 38. It is part of the cost of following Jesus. It says, do not assume that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So you shouldn't be shocked what they will say to try and get you off track, to get you off this Jesus kick. They will try to talk you out of your commitment to Jesus. They will try and make you feel guilty for putting Jesus first in your life and your church commitment ahead of them. They might even try and tempt you to sin, falsely saying you can go to church and sin. They will try anything to draw you away from Jesus. For in doing so, it makes themselves look better in their own eyes and eases their own guilty consciences. In any case, what is known for sure is that Jesus' own family does not yet understand who he is and what he's doing And at this point, Mark's point is that even those people closest to Jesus are struggling to figure this out. But here in our text, we learn that it isn't just Jesus' family who's questioning who he is. We learn in verse 22 that Jesus also alarmed the top Jewish religious establishment while his family thought he was mad. The Jewish leaders and teachers of the law thought that he was bad. His family's conviction that Jesus is deranged is followed by a more serious accusation found in verse 22 and repeated in verse 30 that Jesus is demon-possessed. The scribes and teachers of the law 
includes both the rabbinic Sadducees and Pharisees, and here probably denotes both members of the Sanhedrin and others who are in authority in the temple in Jerusalem. They claim authority to regulate the rites and ceremonies of Judaism, and hence they suppose they have a right and duty to inquire into the conduct of Jesus, as they had with John the Baptist. They send a delegation of legal investigators to check out this new teacher. They know Jesus has a considerable following and that he supposedly possesses power to heal the sick and expel demons. They are now concerned that Capernaum and the whole of Galilee is coming under the spell of this charismatic man whom they consider a false prophet. This delegation of scribes brings two separate but related accusations against Jesus. First, that he's demon-possessed, and second, that he casts out demons through collusion with the prince of demons. So while Jesus' family members are outside the house where Jesus is, unable to get in, there are rabbis inside who are judgmentally listening to Jesus in order to trap and discredit him. These rabbis do not attack his sanity. They attack his spirituality. They do not attribute Jesus' powers to God, the Holy Spirit. They attribute them to Beelzebub. Now, why don't they conclude that Jesus is merely insane? Well, because insanity doesn't explain the supernatural power of Jesus to heal the sick and deliver the demon-possessed. Having begun with the premise that Jesus is not God or sent by God or empowered by God, they must conclude that his supernatural power is satanic. But most common people didn't think that of Jesus. We learn from the parallel passage in Matthew 12, 22 and 23 that Jesus healed a demoniac that was present, that was in attendance in that house on that same occasion. And what was the average person's reaction? All the people were astonished. And they exclaimed, could this be the son of David? But as Pastor Matthews noted in his devotional book, Daily Delight, This was a question, not a statement of fact or a confession of faith. The common people were fascinated by Jesus, but they did not believe in him and who he really is. They would not commit themselves to him as their Messiah. Having seen Jesus' miracles and having heard Jesus' teaching, including his own statement that in him the kingdom of God had come, and having seen that Jesus is stronger than Satan, Most in the crowd remain uncommitted. They prefer to remain neutral. This is commonly known as sitting on the fence. For men in the crowd, it was a very comfortable stance to take. And there are many, many people, perhaps some here this morning, who like taking this position. They have been given sufficient understanding of who Jesus is, and yet they continue to be fence-sitters. They may not act like outright enemies of Christ and his people. They may not take up stones to kill him. They may not even mock him. But they will not confess their sin. And they will not repent. And they will not trust in Jesus for their salvation. And they will not follow him as their Lord. All such people should realize, however, that when it comes to Jesus Christ, neutrality is in fact impossible. We must decide either for or against Jesus. To remain neutral is actually to decide against him. 
all such fence-sitters will sooner or later die and enter into an eternity of doom and despair in hell itself. For they will die in their sins, remaining under the rule of Satan. So this morning I say to you, if you're a fence-sitter, wake up, get off the fence, recognize that there's one stronger than Satan who's come, the Lord Jesus Christ. He has bound Satan. He is even now freeing his elect people from captivity to sin and Satan. And now is the time when you must declare for Jesus, the son of David, the Messiah, the only one who's able to save sinners and bring them to glory. But as our text shows, not everyone was neutral towards Jesus. When he heals the demon-possessed man in their midst, a man who was blind and mute, such that the man could now see and speak, the religious leaders who were present deny that this is a work of God. Instead, they declare, it is only Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. The scribes and the Pharisees so hated Jesus that they falsely and blasphemously claimed Jesus as demon-possessed, and not just by an ordinary demon either, He's possessed by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. They vilely attribute his miracles to the power of the devil. By this, they admit that Jesus did, in fact, work miracles and perform deeds beyond the reach of any unaided human ability or power. But they falsely attributed this to Satan instead of God the Holy Spirit. They viewed Jesus to be a dark magician or sorcerer, and that his work was considered unlawful. Actually, these Jewish religious leaders should have known better, for how can Satan cast out Satan? After all, the devil cannot do any good work, any work of morally pure value. However, in their self-absorbed pride, these house managers seen are sent to investigate Jesus knew that the teachings of Jesus are prevailing among the people and their influence over them is coming to an end. So while they could not deny the miracle, they instead attribute it to demonic power. The name Beelzebub literally means Lord of the Flies or Lord of Dung, which attracts the flies. He is a loathsome, wicked prince of demons associated with all things vile, and filthy. He is the arch ruler of the demonic realm. In other words, he is Satan, as Jesus makes clear in verse 23 and following. So why would these religious leaders say something so mean-spirited? Well, if they acknowledge Jesus is working his miracles by the power of God, then they're obligated to follow him. If they acknowledge Jesus to be who he says he is, They're out of business, and they know it. They lose their positions of authority and even their livelihood. They will each have to change and become followers of Jesus, and that is not going to happen. So they attack Jesus and accuse him of being in league with the devil, knowing that if this charge sticks, they can undermine, undercut Jesus' ministry with the people and draw away his crowds. Oh, such darkness, such evil. Now, this is important for us today. Jesus in John 15, 20 tells us that 
If people in those days attacked Jesus in this way, then we can be sure they will personally attack us too in our day. If they spoke evil of Jesus, you should expect people to speak evil of you, for you are not greater than Jesus. This is a normal part of the cost of following King Jesus, but don't let the naysayers and critics get to you. In Acts 26, 24, we're told that the political establishment said the Apostle Paul was out of his mind. Francis of Assisi was frequently accused of being a madman. They called Dwight L. Moody crazy Moody because of his zeal for the Lord. They also said the same thing about Martin Luther, John Bunyan, John Wesley, and William Carey. And if serving Jesus is madness, then we need a lot more just such sanctified insanity in the church today. In Matthew 10, 7, Jesus is about to send out his apostles into the world to preach the gospel, and he gives them specific instructions about what to do and what not to do. He warns them, be on your guard against men. They will hand you over to the courts, the local councils, and flog you in their synagogues. All men will hate you because of me. And then he adds in verse 24, a student is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It's enough for the student to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, how much more the members of his household? In John 15, Jesus declares, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teachings, they will obey yours also. They will treat you in this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. So, when the attacks come, stay strong in your commitment to Jesus as your Lord. Second, Jesus' reasoned response. Mark 3, Jesus again addresses attackers in the room and destroys their arguments. He begins by asking with a very insightful question. How can Satan cast out Satan? Now, the Bible, both in the Old and New Testaments, contains many references to Satans and demons. If you believe in the Bible, then you must believe what it says about Satan. If you believe in angels, then you will believe in demons. If you believe in heaven, then you must believe in hell. For there is a kingdom of darkness, that is Satan's realm, and a kingdom of light under the leadership and control of Jesus Christ. This is all integral to Christian belief. However, in our modern times, Satan, demons, and hell are treated like fables, meant only for children and the feeble-minded and for horror movies. But marginalizing their existence does not diminish their reality and the presence of evil all around us. Demons are real creatures who, are under, who work under Satan's authority and control. At the same time, keep in mind that they are not all-powerful. God alone is sovereign over all evil as well as all good, and even demons are required in the end to submit to the ultimate power and authority of our Lord and Savior. 
Who are the demons? Well, they're evil spirit beings. They're unclean and immoral by their very nature and in their activities. Scripture says that they are fallen angels who fell from heaven with Satan when he and they tried to stage a coup d'etat against God. Unsuccessful, they were all together tossed out of heaven. The New Testament describes the physical and social and spiritual symptoms of demon possession. In the extreme, these symptoms include a mute tongue, blindness, cutting, crying, convulsions, falling down, rolling on the ground, foaming at the mouth, grinding of the teeth, rigidity, and inhuman strength. These could then result in the demoniac living in cemeteries, under freeway overpasses, or the Yolo Causeway, and even going about naked and defecating in public. In the book of Revelations, God reveals to us that Satan and his Demonic hosts are destined to be finally defeated and cast into the lake of fire, which is also the terrible end that awaits those who refuse to trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and obediently serve him as their Lord. Satan and demons are powerful, but not all powerful. Praise God for that truth. Greater is he that is in you than he, meaning Satan, that is in the world. Jesus is saying to the scribes, your accusation is absurd. If what you say is true, then Satan is destroying his own kingdom. However, that cannot be true. Satan may be evil, but he's not stupid. Everyone knows that a kingdom divided against itself will fall, and a household divided against itself cannot stand. If the scribes' accusations about Jesus working with Beelzebub is true, then Satan has become divided in his allegiance. But that is not the case. Satan is still very strong and undivided in his purpose and power, in his goal to bring as many people with him as he can to hell. Only one who's stronger than Satan can enter into this realm, bind him, and release those enslaved to him. And that has to be God. And Jesus is the eternal Son of God. So by his casting out of demons, Jesus is making a very bold statement about his being fully God and fully man. In the face of the claim that he's possessed by an unclean spirit, Jesus affirms that he possesses the Holy Spirit of God, which brings us to blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Verse 28 says, I tell you the truth, all sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He's guilty of eternal sin. Jesus had done what any unprejudiced person would have acknowledged as a good thing. He set a demoniac man free. But because of this, he's accused of being demon-possessed. He did this through the power of the Holy Spirit, but the religious leaders ascribe it to the power of Satan. So Jesus uses this occasion to speak plainly about the gravity of the charges being raised by the scribes against him. He begins saying, Amen, Amen. I tell you the truth. Jesus is saying that what follows is a solemn statement. What he's speaking is reliable and true, and that it reveals the mind and will of God because he is, in fact, God's true witness. This means we must be very careful to listen to what follows. Jesus proceeds to give both a wonderful promise 
about forgiveness and a most stern warning about blasphemy. Jesus makes it clear that all kinds of sins, no matter how bad or ugly, can be forgiven. The basis of this promise is, of course, Jesus' own blood that was soon to be shed on the cross to atone for the sins of all of those who would put their trust in him as their savior and to submit themselves to his lordship. But there's one notable terrifying exception, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. It makes forgiveness impossible. The idea of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit and the so-called unpardonable or unforgivable sin probably overlap each other, and it's troubled Christian theologians almost from the beginning of the church. But there are a number of important points that need to be made. First, we must define what is blasphemy. Blasphemy is expressing contempt of God and rejecting his rule over you. It's a defiance of God's power and majesty. The scribes knew full well what blasphemy was, profaning the name of the holy God. To their corrupt way of thinking, Jesus was committing acts of blasphemy, so they reject him. Talk about irony. The demons recognize Jesus is the son of God, while the so-called spiritual shepherds of Israel accuse their own sinless Messiah of being one of Satan's agents. Jesus sternly warns them, you can blaspheme about me and be forgiven. But when you question the work of the Holy Spirit, you're coming perilously close to the unforgivable sin. You are right now on that line. You're looking down into the abyss of hell. One more step and there will be no more hope for you. He was warning them to be careful not to insult or mock God the Holy Spirit. In this context, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit denotes the conscious, ongoing rejection of the saving power and grace of God as seen in Jesus' life, in his words and actions. The scribes' judgment was that Jesus' power was demon power. By this, they perversely called good evil and evil good, light darkness and darkness light, knowing full well that what Jesus did was, in fact, very good. They perversely claimed that the work of the Holy Spirit was instead the work of Satan. In verse 30, the Greek sentence begins with the word for or because. Because they were saying. Notice they're continuing to persist in saying that Jesus has an evil spirit, meaning not God, the Holy Spirit. It's one thing to suppose that Jesus is out of his mind, as his family did, but it's quite another to say that the power of God, the Holy Spirit, working through Jesus, and then to say it's not true, and then to callously reject it and attribute it to Satan is the height of sin. This evident, a profound, heartless hardness of heart in these scribes, that they should fear that they're on the brink of eternal ruin. Or if it's not already too late, Jesus does not necessarily declare that these guys are already condemned, but he gravely warns them of their precarious position, assigning the work of God, the Holy Spirit, working in and through Jesus, ascribing it to Satan, rejecting who Jesus truly is, betrays a perverse spirit. It's a damning sin. What Jesus is speaking of here is not an isolated act, 
but a settled condition of the soul, the result of a long history of repeatedly rejecting Jesus and of vilely accusing him of sin. But praise God, if you are a Christian, you have not committed this sin. If you're truly saved, then you are truly secure in Christ. When you believe in Jesus for eternal life, you have eternal life, John 5, 11, and 12. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. And whoever does not have the Son does not have life. J.C. Ryle noted that there is such a thing as a sin which is never forgiven. But those who are troubled about it are most unlikely to have committed it. So if you're worried and grieving and anxious about sin, it means the Holy Spirit is still active in your life. Turn Repent, follow Christ. Satan wants to steal your joy and hope. He wants you to think you've gone too far to be saved. But this is a most stern warning to those persisting in unbelief. Perhaps you've been languishing under the guilt of sin. Conviction's a good thing if it leads to conversion and commitment. If you are an unredeemed sinner who persists in not repenting, and not submitting to Jesus as Lord, you will finally die in your sin. You will not be forgiven. You will perish for all eternity. The good news, however, is that God is ready to forgive each and every one of your sins. So don't put off that decision to follow Jesus. If you persist, however, in resisting the general gospel call of the Holy Spirit to be saved, and instead die in this condition of rebellion towards Jesus, the Savior and Lord. Your sins are not forgiven, and you will pay the price for them forever in hell, in the company of the devil and his demons, whose fellowship you seem to prefer. Fourth, Jesus redefines family. The Pharisees and rabbis in this Galilean house who had just falsely accused Jesus probably stormed out of the house in a huff when Jesus inferred that it was they who were demon-possessed. This gives someone else a chance to tell Jesus his mother and siblings are standing outside to speak to him. You've already read in verses 20 and 21 that the members of his family don't understand the nature of his mission and think he's mentally off-kilter. Jesus seizes this moment to define who is truly related to him. Looking at those seated In a circle around him, Jesus may have pointed to the 12 disciples as those who are truly his family. After all, they had each dropped everything to follow Jesus and to obey the will of God in doing so. These 12 men, or at least 11 of them, have in a sense become Jesus' true family, since even his own half-brothers do not understand who he is until after he will die and rise again. But then Christ also broadens the circle of his family, and this should be exciting. It's broadened to all those who are Christ's disciples, all those who do the will of God, to all those who obey him. In essence, Jesus is speaking of the elect, those given to him by God the Father in eternity past, who now entrust themselves to him and obey him as his obedient servants. These are marked by a surrender to Jesus as Lord. It's demonstrated by obedience to what you know to be his will in your life. Jesus' statement also moves the value of human relationships beyond the physical 
to the spiritual. He's saying as important as physical relationships are, they're not anywhere as important as spiritual relationships rooted in Christ Jesus. This is good news because on Mother's Day and Father's Day, people are often gravely sad. Many people are estranged from their parents or children for whatever reason. But faith in Christ Jesus determines the extent of your true family, not biology. So I ask, are you a member of Jesus' family? If not, then believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and submit to him today, and you will be. In conclusion, what should we take home? The very fact that there are so many different and diverse people who witnessed the miracles of Jesus with their own eyes and yet didn't understand who he was says that the bulk of people are lost. They will never commit themselves to him as Savior and Lord. And that should serve as a warning to each of us. Whether you're indifferent to Jesus, preferring to remain on the fence, or violently opposed to Jesus' rule over you, you are in either case still unforgiven by God and lost in your sin. If this is the case, then repent of your attitude, of your sin, and turn to Jesus by faith and be saved. So I ask, are you viewed as being radical for Jesus? If not, you may not be truly a Christian. You must repent of your lukewarmness, cry out to Jesus this morning, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner, and then begin to live a life sold out for the Lord Jesus. Next, you live an obedient life for Jesus as your king, hearing and doing according to Jesus' word. If not, then you're not saved from your sins and remain a part of the devil's family. Obedience to God is the fruit of true faith. The faith that justifies is the kind of faith that the God, the Holy Spirit, changes. If your faith in Christ leaves you unchanged and disobedient to God, you simply don't have saving faith. You might be in the church, but you're lost. Again, you must repent, trust in Jesus for salvation, and then live under his lordship. Have faith in God and then obey, 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 and keep on obeying until the Lord calls you home. Next, do you live as a vital part of Christ's family, especially being a submitted member to a good godly church such as this one? Or do you place your natural physical family first? If the latter, repent and come follow Jesus. Christ's kingdom has come, And you either trust in Jesus as Savior and obey his will and commands as Lord, even leaving father and mother and brother and sister to follow Jesus if necessary, or you remain outside of Christ's family, unable to understand the things of God which are hidden from those who think themselves too smart to submit to Jesus' rule over them. But know that if you continue to exhibit derangement towards Jesus, and stubbornly reject him as Lord, refusing to do what he commands, you will die in your sins and will never be forgiven. Once you die, there's no second chance, no do-over, no purgatory. Hebrews 2.3 asks, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It's dangerous to hear the gospel message and decide to walk away. Don't forfeit the forgiveness Christ offers to give you. Right here, right now, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And may God grant you this grace to each one of us. Let's pray. 
How grateful we are, O Holy Spirit, that every sin and blasphemy may be forgiven, save the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The truth is, each of us, I, we, need badly your forgiving grace. Thank you for Jesus, the stronger than the strong man who sets the prisoners free, who came to wash us clean and to give us full pardon. I pray that God the Holy Spirit will effectually work within everyone here so that we will each trust in Christ alone as the ground and basis of our justification before you, O God, and that this faith prove its life and truth by producing a passion for obedience to you, our King, the obedience of faith. Grant that none of us may so stray, so rebel, so become hardened in our rejection of Christ that we pass all point of recovery. Instead today, here and now, grant that we, each of us, may come and bend our knees to Jesus. For we ask this in his name. Amen.